Welcome to this episode of the 9420 podcast, where we talk about the music that we love and the industry that we tolerate. And welcome back to this episode of the 9420 podcast. Hi, Carl, and hi, Greg. How are you guys doing? Hello, today? hello, hello. Hello, Nicole. Hello, Greg. Hello, Carl. So, Greg, I know the past Greg. couple of episodes we've been kind of talking a little bit about our favorite movies and music around that, too. So, we thought today we'd kind of take a different spin on what we normally would do and our audience has just heard it with what we played but kind of tell us what you want to talk about today yeah i just thought we'd talk about uh our favorite movies our favorite films how films might have inspired um um you know our careers or might have inspired us to take a particular uh creative direction in our work don't we want to talk about more how music in film pretty much i think drives the film we can just jump right in and I can just spew everything that I know, what little I know about movies. Uh, 
I think the first use of music is was in Dracula, the 1930s version of Dracula Universal, and they used Swan Lake at the beginning over the, the over the opening credit. Uh, and then there wasn't any score. There was no music throughout the entire picture, just that one little piece of music. And I don't me, think you're. I don't think you're correct. Oh, yeah, here we go. No, but it, it, silent film had piano players and music throughout the whole thing. So music's been accompanied with 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 video since well, when since talkies inception. when talkies came in, uh, there, there typically wasn't. And I disagree with that because if you ask me, the first talkie I know was Al Jolson, the jazz singer, and they had music. They had the songs he sang, you know, so. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I've you're always totally heard, wrong. I've always heard <laughs> that Swan Lake at the beginning of the opening credit of the universal version of Dracula with Bela Lugosi was the first use of music in a dramatic sense on Maybe uh, maybe there's a, some qualifiers I don't know, like the first use of Universal or whatever the case may be. So we're off to a roaring start here. Well, we're yeah, going to expose just, what we don't know about <laughs> about movies. But see, so, I, I, so let's, I let's just jump be, right in. Ju- I thought it was going to be less of a history, less of a history lesson, and more of um, just you know what it does to a film. If you ask me, and, and I'm going to get yelled at for this, I think acting usually is boring. <laughs> Two people talking. You very rarely is it that intense, you know, especially on film. Different, different in, in a theater setting when you're there live and you're absorbing it. But when you're watching a film, like, you know, a one-dimensional kind of video, without music, it's flat. I don't agree. I, I think that there good, are some good, very... Nicole. I think that there's some very good acting, um, maybe not now, but it definitely in the past where how they conveyed the emotions that they were trying to do in that particular scene or whatnot truly didn't necessarily need music. But I also agree with Carl that music does elevate films and TV probably more, sh- more so than uh, people people realize because um, if you were to just take the music out of TV shows and take the music out of film, it definitely wouldn't have the same impact as if you had the scores in. Well, the, I, the reason why I know this is because I have a friend. His, his name is Michael Whalen. He does a lot of documentary films. He's actually won a few, I think, Oscars, actually. He's a guy I know from years ago. And uh, and how he got started was he, um, after college, he took four famous scenes, like one from um, – Close Encounters, one from The Godfather, took out the music and rescored them, you know, with his own music. And he showed how it changed the whole, you know, atmosphere. You know, there's a great thing where you see, like, you know the film in Psycho, you know, when she's in the shower scene getting stabbed and has mm-hmm. that dead, dead, music. And, and the music creates the tension. There was a thing where I saw where they took the exact scene and played this carnival music. And it changed the whole mood. It changed the whole thing. Yeah, so, I mean, there's no question that, that, you know, when you make a film, what little I know about it, when you make a film, it's it's absolutely a composite, right? So... But I think the degree to which music is used can can you know can slant uh, your reaction in big ways. But I I don't necessarily think that it's um, 
I don't, I don't think I don't think it's required. I mean, one of my favorite movies of all time is is American Graffiti, and when you read about how that came into production, George Lucas wanted uh, the, the the soundtrack. He wanted the music in the picture to actually become the ambiance, and he wanted to be able to place you in that time and space. And he did it incredibly creatively by actually not putting the music on top of the film, but actually in the background, Wolfgang Jack in the car radio. Exactly. Actually putting it in the physical space and then filming it. They had, you know, large speakers hidden down alleyways and that kind of thing. So the music becomes, um, you know, a, a huge part of the thematic experience. And I, I think that's fascinating and I think it worked really well, but you wouldn't consider the music to be uh, front and center. It's just part of the ambiance of, of the film. Yeah, which I think is important. And, the, and also the there's experience. a, and also I think there's a distinction between, you know, p- placement of music in, in movies and then actual but then soundtrack like background soundtrack music like right. what we're playing here today this is more just stuff in the background the the set the mood set the um like i don't know it's, there's so many movies that i watch maybe i'm a sucker but when i see like the scene happens and all of a sudden all of a sudden the violins come in they start fading in it almost tells you cues you and how to feel oh we're sad now let's be sad so i don't know so- well when it's done overtly i mean it, i think it it can kind of mess up the film but if if it's done uh with a certain amount of expertise i think it 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 truly works um I started thinking about, I figured we'd talk about a few of the films that uh, impacted us, a few of the films that we love versus the music we love. And uh, when I put the little list together, I put a list of four or five films and they all use music in kind of uh, a, a, u- a unique way. And there's a, there's an element of uniqueness to how uh, the soundtrack and the score was either created or 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 utilized once again you know i i don't claim to be a a a film aficionado but the films that i do love that have had the biggest impact and the biggest and have been the biggest inspiration for me um they have this unique relationship with music so name one but that was interesting well I mean, I'll get heat for this if anybody ever hears it, but my favorite movie of all time is uh, this little picture made in 1942 called Holiday Inn. And it's Bing Crosby, right? Bing Crosby. And it, uh, it is a, um, uh, it, it, it's kind of a time capsule for the late 30s and 40s. And because of that, because it's of its time, it has the, unfortunate distinction of having a probably one of the most egregious blackface scenes in the history of film in it right and but the other distinction and the reason it uh, had a big impact on me is it was the film that featured white christmas 
Yeah, Irving Berlin. Sure, yeah, that was, yeah. And then when they take over the, uh, they, they try to get that thing together for the old general. And yep. they, no, right. no, no, that's, that's, that's the actual sequel, which is called White Christmas. This is oh, okay. the film that preceded it called Holiday Inn. And the premise is that this guy comes off. Oh, yeah, Fred Astaire, right? Yeah, Fred Astaire. They come, they come off being an a entertainment duo. And one guy retires to uh, uh, this little place called Holiday Inn. And he says, I'm only going to work you know, on the holidays and, uh, uh, it's a, it's a madcap, uh, adventure from there. But, well, did you know, just another, a little side thing. Did you know that, um, that Bing Crosby is very, you know, important, you know, very, very, he basically brought microphone technology to the forefront and taping. Right, he, he was like, like a lot of these guys, these old dudes. And it's funny how like that's still kind of the same kind of microphones we use today. Like, there's so much more technology has grown and changed and progressed, but we seem to nail the microphone back in the '40s, you know. And it's pretty much the same thing, you know. There are people that claim, um, and I I might tend to agree. There are people that claim that Bing Crosby is the most important and influential entertainer in the last century. Because of because of his the ubiquitousness of, or the ubiquity of his his voice, uh, and he made hundreds of recordings, and he was kind of at the right place at the right time where he was transitioning from radio, which had huge audiences, to uh, being able to sell recorded product. And yeah, he he experimented. That's the reason he got it. He started experimenting with multi-tracking and with uh, technologies because he was looking for a way in which to record radio shows and not have to do them live. But if you go back and listen to those old shows, I mean, it's just astounding. Uh, you know, you'll never hear him hit a bad note or put in right. a, a mediocre performance. And they did hundreds of shows live. Let's take a little break, play a little more music, and then, you know... Come yeah, back. as you're listening, this is um, this is all stuff uh, out of the um, uh, podcastmusic.com production music library that's available for licensing in podcasts. So that's another reason we're featuring it. This is um, this would typically be used as underscore for uh, a film project and uh, maybe listen. maybe create your own pictures. Yeah.
Hey, everyone, we're back. Um, but I have to agree with Greg. I think Bing Crosby is is that iconic person, especially when it comes to how influential he was with sound. One of my favorite movies is White Christmas. And it's just one of those things. I've been around for 30 some odd years. And Danny I, Kay. I still cannot get enough of it. You it's know, there are really great stories about that. I mean, Bing Crosby didn't want to do it with Danny Kay. He wanted to reprise. He wanted um, Fred Astaire again. Uh, Fred Astaire again, and he was committed for for another project. And and uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there about how uh, Crosby really wasn't comfortable working with Danny Kay. And Danny Kay is great. In the, well, in well, the, the funny thing about Bing Crosby is, you know, I don't want, don't want to get into the history of Bing Crosby, but you know, the Bells of St. Mary, all his great movies. I heard he wasn't the best and nicest guy. He plays all these great, wonderful, sweet pe- people, but I heard like in real life, he was kind of a. Well, exactly. I think he, I think he was the consummate professional. I think he was a taskmaster. I think he was kind of an old school. Uh, he had old school parenting skills. But if you do the research, um, you most of that was propagated by. His son, uh, some uh, you know, some kind of mental illness in his family. Uh, yeah, and there were some books written, and they well, can't, they, well, they can't get the together. Coolest- he he did, in fact, have that Hollywood thing going where mm-hmm. he screwed up his first family and then right. did much better on his second family. The cool, one of the coolest things he did to even at the end of his life was um, bringing Bowie on his special. Remember doing that that Bowie Bing Crosby Christmas. Yeah, he didn't. He he literally didn't know anything about Bowie and didn't know his daughter. Yeah, Yeah. but that that, that's an amazing piece of history. But I jumped in on you, um, Nicole. So, what else do you like about White Christmas? Um, For me, so uh, growing up, a lot of the movies that I watched and what I remember is always going over to my grandparents' house. So between Shirley Temple and like. somewhere over the rainbow and things like that. Those were the things that I grew up hearing. So white Christmas for me just is able to bring me back to a time where music was easy at least. And the sound was fluid and it just was something that it brought you to a different place. Um, Not saying that that's not the case now, but there's definitely a difference between then and how they did music and now and how they do music. Yeah, they're kind um, of isn't, a, just just an aside. Isn't White Christmas the most licensed song ever? Like the most something. There's something record it holds. It, it it held the record for the most single sales for many years. I don't know if that's been topped. Uh, right. It probably has. But you know, the thing for White Christmas for me uh, is um, I love the look of it. The colors are just so surreal. It's in. Right. Uh, what I do know is that it's shot in Vista Vision, whatever the hell that is. You know, I was thinking, though, getting off White Christmas a bit, yeah. going more into music, you know, soundtrack music. You know, what do you think of today's soundtrack stuff? I kind of like it. Like, like, I like some of the stuff where you just have a guy playing like a, a whammy bar echoed guitar. And it's going to be so effective. That kind of soundtrack stuff. Do you know what I'm talking about? As opposed to real scoring and underscore stuff. And to me, that that simple, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I it can be just as effective. I love that stuff sometimes. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, it's interesting because when you talk about music supervision inside films, I mentioned American Graffiti earlier. I mean, that was actually the film that 
before American Graffiti, there really there wasn't a job title music supervisor on on any of these right. films, and you know the directors kind of you know slapped stuff on uh, that was consistent with their vision for the picture. But um, yeah, I mean, I think today's music supervisors are really into that. You know, the the kind of working with the sound designers and kind of creating uh ambiance with uh specific tracks and sounds and um helping the mood along and you're right that not necessarily it's usually done in post-production and not necessarily part of the score no i've, I've done a little bit of that and basically what it is they put a film in front of you sit in front of my program and i have an acoustic guitar i just kind of play you know you just just doodle around and try to create sound and that's and that's it sometimes yeah. just just a guitar and a little percussion thing and it's vibey and it's cool yeah we'll use that it's great yeah it doesn't yeah. get it doesn't get in the way but yet it adds something you know so so carl so what what are what are your top two or three pictures in, of all time you know i'm i'm such a film guy I, don't know, I love movies that that just that, that that move me and like, and the music is a, is a major part of it, you know. But then I like, you know, one of my favorite movies basically is um, is Almost Famous by uh, Cameron Crowe. I wouldn't have and guessed that. Well, you know what I love about that movie? It so depicts my my time. You know, I'm the age of that kid. You know, he really nailed it. Like a lot of times when in films, they don't. They don't take real like care about like the right microphones and the right guitars to use. Like they have guys in that circa nineteen sixty eight playing a an amplifier that that was wasn't invented until seventy eight. You know what I mean? So little stuff yeah. like that that I really look at that detail. And he did it so well, and the music was done so well. And, and to me, he nailed that 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 time. If you want to know what it was like in the late sixties, early seventies, the rock scene in America, that movie to me nails it. Yeah, I, th there's a film in that genre that a lot of people love uh, called "That Thing You Do." Have you seen? Oh, that? that that was great too. Yeah, I mean they they really. That was a little earlier. That was back sixty five. There were there were a, a, a bunch of guys, Nashville based guys, that were part of the 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 soundtrack and the score for that film. And uh, that guy that, just died of COVID. The guy who wrote the song. They got that right too. Yeah, and so, when you're a music person and you see a film that that gets it wrong i mean it's just glaring and it's i hate all these biopics and they're so cheesy i didn't even you know? i didn't really dig the queen thing even what i didn't like about the queen thing a few years back this guy jeff workman you know he wanted to produce a couple of things i was doing back in the in the 90s and uh, jeff workman was basically the recording engineer for roy thomas baker on um night of the opera he told me the story of bohemian rhapsody how that song came about and he was there you know freddie mercury would come in one day you know kind of buzzed off of you know some opera or something and he came in and he starts sitting at the piano going no, no making fun of opera right, right. And they would just roll tape you know, he I'm just a boy, uh, silly things, you know? So then every day they would come in. He goes, what do I do today? He goes, let's work on that silly opera thing, blah, 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 right? So over the course of a month, 
They had all these silly things, and the guys started getting crazy and start doing like all the high harmonies, the drummers involved, and they start losing losing sight of the record, right? right? So then he had this other piece of music that they recorded. Is this the real? You know, that was another whole thing. Then they had Mama, another whole song, right? right. Then they had dun, 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 dun. so they basically had these like, six pieces. So one one day they're all kind of hanging in the studio, spending the day putting this whole thing together, blah, blah blah, you know, and then they they play back and listen to it, right? And Jeff told me, he's this funny guy, man, who died about two years ago. He says they're sitting there listening to it, the whole band, and Roy Thomas Baker, and he's sitting in the studio. And Roy Thomas Baker, after it's done, he goes, does this suck? <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, he goes, is this like, just too stupid. This is like the worst thing that anybody's <laughs> yeah. ever heard. They said, what is this? Does this suck? And then Freddie Mercury goes, no, I think it's great. So they put on the record. But anyway, yeah. so the movie glosses over all of that. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't think it was raw enough. I mean, it was like, you know, the first thing you usually, I mean, I, it sounds stupid, but the first thing I usually detect is, you know, like the authenticity of the wigs or the hair. Exactly. Styles. Like, you well, know, like, I tell you, the Brian May guy looked just like him, and, <laughs> and 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 their thing, you know, their depiction of Live Aid at the end was pretty great. What's the guy's name? We're going to get ourselves in trouble here. I I think it's an extraordinary performance. The picture as a whole just didn't didn't do it for me. Me too. Yeah, most of those biopics are lame. I think you know. I purposefully um, stayed away from the Elton John one. Yeah, but that, what I love about the Elton John one was it was kind of cool that it didn't try to be Elton John. It was kind of a musical, and Elton John dug it. The Elton John of my childhood is best represented as Pinball Wizard in Tommy. Yeah, that because that, that was real. What did you all think of Tommy? I've never seen Tommy. The movie, the Kent Russell movie. I think it was of its time. I think it kind of was self-indulgent, to be honest with you. I would encourage you to go back and watch it again. I think it's art. It's what it is, you know. Um, I don't get the whole scenes with Anne Margaret and the Beans. What was that oh, about? dude. Well, why don't we take Epic. a break? Yeah, why don't we take a break? And on the flip side, we can talk more about that. And whatever track we're going to be playing, Envision and Margaret. <laughs> Circa 1975, though. Circa 1970s um, in about, I think it was a thousand gallons of Van Camp's pork and of beans. beans, right.
welcome back everyone. So like we were talking about before, and I know I cut you both off, um, but you guys were talking about the Elton John biopic and then kind of, we were talking a, a little bit about Tommy. Um, but Greg, the whole point of what we're talking about today is based off of our opinions on how music has influenced the films that we truly do love and go back to. Yep. I mean, I, I think that, um, and by the way, Nicole, you, you tonight you have to rent Ken Russell's Tommy. I will. I'll make my husband watch it with me. I'll tell you something about about. I don't know. He'll appreciate um, it, a little bit about what we're talking about. That um, is sad too, because I think film music is an integral, super important part of film. But in my years, I got in, in the nineties. I worked a, a long time in in jingles and sound production. You know, for different companies, and and how it kind of breaks down is that for every ten dollars they spend on film, they spend one dollar on music. Yeah, but I mean, the magic can always happen because if you've got people, if you've got people making the film that that can deliver on on a smaller budget, it 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 can always well, happen. Well, you know, perfect they're... example, like almost famous. I know this about Cameron Crowe fought. Because his budget was only about was only about like eleven million dollars, like I think in two thousand, it was a small budget movie to do that do that that movie. But he wanted all those licenses: Elton John, Rod Stewart, you know, The Who, Simon and Garfunkel, serious license. His license for that movie cost about three point five million dollars at the time, yep. which is about almost a third of his full budget exactly. of the film, which to him was like, it was craziness to, to spend that much money on music. But to him, it was necessary. The same thing happened with American Graffiti. I mean, Lucas said, you know, I won't make the movie if, if I can't the, get the real if stuff, the right? original recordings aren't part of the movie. And so they ended up not, they ended up having zero budget for score. So there is actually no score inside the film it's all ambient use of the original recordings in order to uh create the atmosphere yeah, but which, which makes it kind of cool and it was well it was he he said in interviews it's like it was an extremely avant-garde you know project for its time but we had to do it the way we envisioned it and it ended up working out so i think there's always serendipity when you've got talented people involved. You know, I, I recently read an article about, um, I think it was something like the 15 biggest flops out of Hollywood. Right. And, you know, there's a sameness to the story. And, the, and that is that all these films had budgets of 100, 200, 300, 400 million dollars. Right. So, I mean, what do you expect when you're rolling the dice on a creative project and you're investing $300 million. I mean, it's just the, the films that appeal to me are the ones that are made for $10 million. And it's my understanding that very, very, very few of those are made these days uh, because they don't, the, you know, the studios don't see the return. And so, sometimes it's easier to get a $200 million film financed as opposed to a $10 million film. But, you know, I mean, if you're putting that much up front, and I, I assume that's what it costs because you got hundreds of people working on this collaborative piece. What can you expect? I mean, there's a great, there's a great film that I, 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 I recommend. It's called The Big Picture, and it's with um, 
Kevin Bacon. Yeah, you talk about this. I love this movie because it I talks about Hollywood. You got to watch it because it talks about what we're talking about, about Hollywood. And the, uh, the premise is, it's funny. Kevin Bacon pays this guy who comes out of like the equivalent of like New York NYU film school. Like he's the wonderkin, like the big, the great. Everyone wants him because he's that big filmmaker at NYU. So he comes in, he goes to Hollywood. And uh, he gets his choice of people to make his movie because now he's the big new kid from NYU. You know what I mean? And I think that's where Scorsese came out of and stuff like that, you know? So anyway, he gets to Hollywood and he goes to a guy's, he gets his deal and he goes, okay, now, Kevin, tell me your movie. And he goes, well, it takes, it starts off, in, he's talking to the head, head of the, the studio. He goes, well, it starts off in a, in a log cabin in the winter and it's black and white. He goes, oh, black and white. Could it be color? He goes, he goes, oh, well, I guess it could be color. Okay. And does it have to be um, a dark gray cavern in the winter? Could it be like maybe the beach, like in the summer? <laughs> and he goes, well, he goes, okay, so continue. What's your story? He goes, it's about these two men in their 50s and this woman in her late 40s. And this is triangle. He goes, oh, do they have to be that old? Because like most <laughs> most people don't want to see their parents in a movie, and instead of it being two two men and a, and a woman, could it be two women like in their twenties and a man? <laughs> I think I've met those people. Yeah. Then he goes. Then he goes. What kind of music? And he goes. I thought just stark cello throughout. And he goes, yeah, you know, but that gets kind of old. <laughs> What's this movie called? And he goes, well, it's called like, like some sour dark in the woods. He goes, anyway, so the end of the, end of the show, you see the, the trailer for the movie. It's called, <laughs> it's called Beast Nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and all these girls are dancing around. It's like this. Well, I've done, <laughs> you know, I mean, I totally get that. I, I've done a little bit of research on, on like, Hollywood practices over the last few years because I've got one of my little uh, pet creative projects is uh, over the last few years I took a first stab at uh, working on a uh, all right sure a, a story and I actually have a, a a partner that owns a production company so we've we've been through the mill and I thought well it's probably best if I having no, zero experience in that industry, maybe I should um, do a little research. And it's it's really pretty interesting how Hollywood works. I mean, the fact of the matter is we're talking about all these movies that we love uh, and all these movies that have become iconic. But in the scheme of things, for a movie to be made, even even for a movie to be made and to be shown, it's an incredibly rare thing because – Essentially, what Hollywood is—it's a compository of um, of stories, and that's really the—that's really kind of the uh, um, what's the word coin of the realm. That's the—that's the tender that drives the industry. All these people are just acquiring stories and acquiring rights and taking options on the stories. Whether or not the movie ever gets made is really kind of secondary. They're, they're basically just uh, collecting stories on the off chance that somebody's going to be willing to well, see yeah, it. It's, like, it's amazing anything, anything really quality gets made ever. Absolutely. No question. And so that's why I, I, I tend to 
gravitate towards the the indie stuff not 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 the indie stuff that you know somebody made on a credit card but the stuff that um doesn't get maybe, shown in like the big theaters most or, of the time. yeah or, or the or the stuff that maybe has some creative vision and it's a pet project of one of the things that fascinated me was i started reading about these directors that have blockbusters in their canon uh that they've all got projects that they've tried they've they've tried to get financed and they've tried to make for 10 15 20 years and it's like you telling me that Martin Scorsese has a project he wants to do and he can't make it because he can't find the financing that's that that's the reality of Hollywood it's very strange well i know there's like Clint Eastwood you know, and he had to deal with his studio where he would. He, that's why he kept doing these Dirty Harrys and and those silly movies. He said, "For every Dirty Harry I'll do, you got to give me one of mine." And that's where he got to make you know his uh, Unforgiven and all those other movies because you yep. know one and one. I tell you, it's a funny thing. There's a great. There's a thing with that Matt Damon did with Ben Affleck back on uh, HBO years ago. It's called Project Greenlight. Yeah, I saw some. And of that. Uh, and one thing he said that was funny. He goes, "Listen, even to make a bad movie." It's hard, you know. <laughs> Even to make the worst movie in the world, it's still hard. A lot of parts, lot of, so I don't know. I was gonna say too. There's a documentary on Netflix. I have to find it because I don't remember the name of it. That goes into depths of some of the classic movies that everyone knows and loves nowadays. And one of the concentrations is Home Alone, and how that movie almost never got made for a. a many different reasons and how some of the actors even were called in at the last minute in order to make the movie work. Um, and it's just interesting how many things can change over the course of, you know, six or seven months that this, these movies are being made in order to get the final product. Yep. And, and that's a big problem with regard to some of these movies that do get made and, and they flop is because the kind of the, um, the box office draw, perception of some of these uh some of these actors in some of these budgets the actors are 40 percent mm -hmm. of the budget right you know and so it, it, it it's analogous to the music industry in a lot of ways because you have actors taking a substantial portion of the budget and oh, gosh um, imagine if know, music had 40 percent of the budget and how much that would affect it that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, but but the, but the trade-off is like, but when you get the actor attached to it, that's yeah. how it gets made. Correct. It's an interesting business. What other movies? Um, did you ever see? Did you ever see Phantom of the Paradise? That's with that's with our friend. Uh, what's his Paul name? Williams. Uh, Paul Williams, right? That was that's one of my guilty pleasures. I mean, I, I hate that term, but I find that most of the things I like would be considered no, ridiculous. Somebody else, you know, but. Uh, that's that's a movie that is so over the top and so visionary in its uh, kind of uh, parody of the music industry and of um, a time and a place where big business was kind of controlling um, uh, the music industry and the entertainment industry. That, that that's a it's just a bizarre movie, but delightful because music is actually a huge part of it. I mean. Paul Williams created the soundtrack and uh, he created, um, he wrote several songs for the movie and then they're performed by various iterations of this uh, imaginary label called Death Records. And uh, it's it's really creative and really fun. You want to take, take a break and do one last, not to cut you off, but do one last piece of music and then 
Can I close yeah. up? Sure, that's fine. To round out this episode, because we could probably keep going and talking about this probably for a good four hours if we really wanted to. Well, it's, it's an interesting yeah, it's, topic. It's, it's, it's um, but I guess to, to kind of close this out, um, what are your takes on where the industry is potentially going, especially when it comes to um, music still having the impact it, it had before when it comes to film? I think the, the newer and newer directors are going... Indie, they're going um, less scores. Nothing like the Harry Potter score or anything like that. Where Unless they're the big movies like that. The big movies are still doing it. Well, mate, I mean, what you're talking around is the idea that Danny Elfman essentially has cornered the market on writing the scores for, for you know, a lot of great pictures. Probably one of my favorite movies of all time, 
bar none is Big Fish. Yeah, yeah you've, you've mentioned I, that a lot of times. I was, Albert Finney. I was so influenced by that movie. Uh, and it was just amazing to me, and it actually has become also my favorite film score of all time. And Danny Elfman did it, and it's just uh, it's just magic, and I love it so much. Maybe the reason we did this episode, bogus as it may be, was that I think Nicole mentioned uh, Field of Dreams a couple episodes back, and that's a father-son story, too, that's really touching it. So guys, what do you, what do you think what do you think we've taught our audience with this episode? Did they have they learned anything? I think speaking for myself, I've taught people that I don't know jack about movies. <laughs> I think they've learned something about our, maybe our taste in movies and, and the the music that we like to hear. Um, but also hopefully it just gets them inspired to to actually like listen to the music in movies now if that's not something that they were aware of and see how it does truly affect um, what's going on in the films and how it can convey emotions and drive the movie forward. Well, on that note, <laughs> on that note, everyone, make sure that you go to the website and subscribe to this podcast so you do not miss out on any of these wonderful episodes that we're going to keep bringing you. But until next time, have a great week, and we'll talk to you guys later. Take care. And we'll see you at the movies. (laughs) Bye, everyone. (laughs) 